Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the think tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this edition of City Talks. Today, my guests are Max Nathan and Eliza Easton. Max is from the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL, as well as the Centre for Economic Performance at LSE. And Eliza is Deputy Director of Policy for the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre at Nesta. Welcome to you both. Our topic today uh, is uh, the role of creative industries in driving economic performance of our cities. And as the framework for the discussion, we're going to use a recent paper that Max and co-authors have published in the journal Economic Geography, entitled Creative Clusters and Creative Multipliers, Evidence from UK Cities. Uh, And I want to try and organise the conversation in three broad buckets, if that makes sense. So bucket one, to get your thoughts on the distribution of creative industry activity across the UK. What's the geography? How is it changing, etc.? And both of you have done work on that. The second bucket then, I think, is about the impact that creative industry activity has, so impact on employment or on uh, firm growth or firm change and on places themselves. And then obviously the third bucket is about the policy implications that flow from buckets one and two. I thought so that kind of makes sense. But before we get into um, bucket one, and because our audience is slightly more discerning and nerdy, uh, Max, do you, you, you start, um, you're going to need to start with some definitions as uh, where we always have to start, right? So in your paper, and I get Eliza to come in, in your paper, how are you defining creative industries? And then how are you defining cities? And then how are you, do you what framework are you using to think about multipliers? So three bits, creative industries, how are you defining it? Cities, how are you defining it? And local multiplier effects, how are you defining it? Because I know our audience will immediately go, I wonder how they're defining all of that kind of stuff. And then I get Eliza to pitch in with some additional thoughts if, if her kind of thoughts uh, differ from what you've just said. So, Max, start us off. So creative industries, I mean, the simple definition uh, is that they're goods and services which have culture, art and or entertainment value. The way we use that in the paper is that we um, use the government's definition of creative industries, which is the definition everyone uses in the UK. So there are nine sectors. Uh, I can list them all if you like, because they might be useful. Um, Advertising and marketing, architecture, crafts, design, of the media, as in film, radio, TV, photography, uh, software uh, and computer games, publishing, galleries, libraries and museums, and uh, the arts. Now, I mean, back in the day, people just used to talk about the arts. They didn't talk about the creative industries. We spend a bit of time in the paper talking about how that definition has kind of progressively broadened. Um, and that reflects the way the, the economy in the UK has changed. You know, it's now um, it's not exactly post-industrial, but it's, you know, it's, there's a lot more kind of services and kind of experiences than there were, you know, sort of even 40 or 50 years ago. So that sort of shift from manufacturing dominated towards services and from sort of widgets towards experiences is one of the reasons why people think about the creative industries in this broader way. The way the DCMS thinks about it is it looks at industries and it looks at the kind of occupations and tasks people have. And 
those nine groups I've talked about are all industries where there are a lot of people doing kind of creative tasks and in creative occupations. And the DCMS basically has a threshold um, and industries which have a sort of share of occupations above that threshold are deemed creative industries. Now, there's still a lot of people doing creative stuff elsewhere in the economy. In the jargon, we talk about them as being embedded in non-creative sectors, like they're kind of sleeper agents doing creative stuff, uh, which we don't know about. But that's the way we think about it. And when we talk about the creative industries in the paper, it's those nine sectors. Sometimes we lump them all together. Sometimes we kind of split them out because we think there might be differences between them. Okay. Cities, we define kind of functionally. So we use the travel to work area level to do this. Um, so this is, as, as many of the, your listeners will know, this is quite a kind of um, large area. So it sort of often looks a bit like a city region. So London is one travel to work area, kind of Greater Manchester is another travel to work area. So these are defined on the basis of kind of um, commuting patterns. So it's either over 70% or over 75% of people in the travel to work area live and work in it. So if you're trying to think about a kind of spatial economy, that's the best approximation we have without kind of building stuff by hand. And then the kind of framework for multipliers, um, also framework for impacts we think about, the sort of, at the technical level, we use a kind of framework that Enrico Moretti developed in a 2010 paper called Local Multipliers. The kind of the way that we think about, in, about it in the paper is I guess there are kind of three schools of thought when we're thinking about the economic impact creative industries might have on the city. Um, so one is just to think, one is that the, you know, creative industries are sort of clustered in cities because that's the way sort of the economy is moving. So this sort of shift towards creative industries reflects these broader economic shifts. Um, and creative industries, for reasons we can go on to, like being in cities, they benefit from being there. Um, so they have a sort of an urban footprint, but they don't necessarily have an urban impact. A second school of thought says actually creative industries want to be in cities because they benefit from being there. And in some ways, the, sort of the city economy drives the creative industries. So the impact goes from the city to the creative sectors. So, you know, a lot of creative firms locate in cities because they benefit from agglomeration economies, but also that's because where a lot of their customers are and where a lot of their collaboration and partners are so you can think about it that way as well just the footprint impacts from city to industry and then the kind of third school of thought which is closest to the Moretti one is that you have these halo effects from the creative industries to the wider urban economy um, now there are sort of various ways that could happen um, one of which is through kind of local spending so a lot of creative workers particularly in those you know advertising media design are quite well paid so their kind of local spending might support local services in the economy um tourism and the kind of visitor economy particularly to you know to kind of arts and amenities might also drive up spending and we might also you know imagine that there are kind of knowledge spillovers going on here so people in sort of creative firms might well be you know spreading ideas and learning from and kind of hybridizing stuff from other high skill sectors in the economy I mean, there are other channels, but those are the three main ones. And when Moretti talks about this in a more formal way, he says, you know, let's imagine that you have a city and it receives a kind of creative industry shock. So creative industries grow. Maybe there's a relocation for whatever reason, or maybe it just maybe there's just a kind of structural shift towards a more creative economy. Then we can think about these kind of you know, direct impacts on the creative sectors themselves, but also these halo effects. 
and he goes into some detail about the kind of conditions under which you might see you know some of these and not others why some might be more important or less important Brilliant, excellent, fantastic exposition of uh, definitions and then um, framework. And you've already begun to think about and talk a little bit about bucket, you know, the, how we think about where they are and, and how what the mechanisms for impact being uh, felt or, or not. We'll come on to those in a second. But Eliza, just in terms of the definition, A, anything to add to the sort of definitional sort of statements that... Um, Max was saying, but also, can you give us a sense of the sort of size and scale of the creative industries on block as a, you know, as a bit of the economy? Is it, you know, is it a small bit? Is it a big bit? How should we think about, you know, th those, uh, those sectors when they're combined as a proportion of or a contribution to the, to the economy? Yeah, so it's one of my favourite nerdy tasks to talk about definitions of the creative industry. So just to sort of add first to what, to what Max was saying, which is all completely right. I suppose it's worth pointing out that defining the creative industries is an extremely controversial endeavour. In fact, if we wanted to spend all of our time at the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre talking about definitions, um, we easily could. We've chosen, uh, as Max said, to really use the sort of Westminster UK government interpretation and their definition of the creative industries. Scotland uses a slightly different one sometimes, um, but most people kind of understand what that UK DCMS definition looks like. And as Max said, it's, it's really um, quite, a, I'd say it's quite an exciting way of defining a sector because it's around activity. So it has this 30% threshold for a workforce in any subsector being, being in creative occupations. Having a sense of what creative occupations is outside the creative industries also opens up opportunities for research. So for example, you're thinking about the design sector. Of course, you find as many designers outside of design businesses as you do in them. And so um, we really think about the creative industries as those people working in sort of design businesses um, but we also think a lot about the creative economy, which is design businesses, everyone in them, plus designers. So there's lots of ways that you think about that sort of creative industries definitional question. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think often people say, uh, I hear, especially from MPs, you know, these things have just been thrown together. Um, they say it normally before they work for GCMS, um, but these things have just been thrown together. Why would we think about these as a sector? Of course, it's supposed to be a useful um, policy conceit. You know, we understand industries because it gives us ways to work with different sectors in the economy. But I actually think that because the definition comes back to this sort of practice, this creative thinking, you do find some things that really go right through the sector. So one example would be that um, within the sector, about one in three people work as freelancers. To me, that's really closely connected to the idea that people are often doing really creative occupations, which are needed by lots of different types of companies at different moments in time. Um, and so you see that in, in you know, software development as much as you do in craft, as much as you do in design. It might seem on the face of it that these things are very different, but we do actually see some similarities. So a quick unasked for defense of the creative industries definition there. And then scale and contribution. We're talking um, 100 and 116 billion pounds in 2019, um, 2.2 million jobs. 
Um, I think from memory, it's something like, you know, in London, you're thinking about one in six roles are in the creative industries. And it's something like one in 12 across the country as a whole. I'd need to double check those figures, but um, it's a really significant part of the economy. Of course, a lot of that, a really significant proportion is made up from a fast growing tech sector, but the other areas too, design, you know, film, music, these are really substantial parts of the UK economy. Not only that, but probably some of the only elements where we're still genuinely world leading. I was just reviewing some of the international export um, stats today and you still see the UK sort of globally leading in this area especially around services which is pretty extraordinary given our size um, but yeah so I, th I think it is fundamentally a hugely misunderstood part of the economy but, but massively important I always put my head in my hands when I know there was the controversy around Boris Johnson talking about Peppa Pig and sort of it's seen as so embarrassing when our MPs talk about creative assets. I'm not saying it was a particularly good speech, but I am saying that Peppa Pig as an IP is actually a fascinating case study of what the UK gets wrong with creative industries because we sold it far too early. It is now worth you know absolutely billions. Of, well, the company that it was a core IP for is worth sort of billions of pounds. And so the issue with Peppa Pig was not that it's not a British success story, but that we couldn't put the level of investment in that would have allowed it to be um, sort of bringing back those tax pounds for us later on. Brilliant. Brilliant. Excellent. That's a great uh, defence of Peppa Pig, I feel, and the use of it in, you you know, in, every, in everyday <laughs> speeches. I wasn't expecting that on this podcast, but I'm always pleasantly surprised with uh, uh, in the conversation I have. Right. So We've done definitions. We've got a sense of the scale. Um, Max, you, you kick us off again, going back to your paper and to bring Eliza in on the back of it in terms of bucket one, which I talked about, which is you're looking at um, the distribution of um, of the creative industries across your I think it's 78. Is that right? Your kind of your 78 sort of urban travel to work. Uh, areas and you're looking at it both in terms of a sort of rates and levels type of thing. What's the static picture? What's the dynamic picture? So just tell us what that is. And I'll bring Eliza in, because you've done some interesting work, which I think corresponds to and complements what, what Max is doing in terms of when we get to the very micro, which so I'll come to you on that. We can broaden it up. But Max, just in the paper, what are you finding in relation to distribution? I mean, the, the static picture and the dynamic picture are kind of the same um, at city level. So creative industries are you know, very clustered um, in a few cities, and this is very persistent. And so we look over 20 years and the kind of the places that are that, that have the biggest kind of counts of firms and jobs or shares or kind of measures of clustering that we use, they're all kind of the same and they don't really change very much. So in the paper, we have some kind of top 20s in the appendix and there's a little bit of movement, but really not very much. So we're talking about you know, kind of London and areas around it and also, you know, Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, Edinburgh, Glasgow. I mean, we see a little bit of diffusion. So, you know, Edinburgh kind of enters the top 20 in our data. Um, in 2018, it's sort of not there in 1998, but I'm sure it's just outside it. The places outside London, like Crawley, Tunbridge Wells, you know, so places like Eliza, same places that actually have a lot of kind of tech industry, um, particularly sort of places like Reading and Banbury, um, are very high up there. So when you sort of look within cities, it, it gets a bit more interesting. So, you know, London is a kind of 
you know, is a cluster, but it's also a very kind of diverse cluster within the creative industries and also generally. And some of these smaller places I've mentioned are much more specialized, um, but they've also kind of stayed specialized. So I think that picture is not surprising. There are, you know, there's other work um, that Bruce Tether has done for the um, Policy and Evidence Center and that, you know, others at NASA have done and sort of elsewhere in academia and policy world. It all shows this same kind of aggregate picture. Um, I think if you were to kind of run it back over a much longer time frame, you would also see a lot of persistence. So I think that kind of geography of creativity will move around more if you look over kind of 50 years, 70 years, but, you know, not very much. It's a very kind of stable picture at that aggregate level. Where I think it's interesting, which we good to hear from Eliza on, is what happens when you go down to neighbourhood level, because I think there is going to there is much more much more kind of change there. Um, and there's another project that we're doing for the for the PEC, looking at kind of creative industries and gentrification, where we're working at neighbourhood level. And what we're finding is very similar to what kind of Eliza and her team have have looked at. So it's kind of more diffuse when you look. Uh, you know, really at the kind of the neighbourhood scale in terms of creative clusters. Brilliant. Um, no, he's a, Max has teed you up. Yeah. Uh, he's kind of given the, you know, the sort of, it, it's fairly concentrated and it's fairly kind of long-standing, which we'll come on to in a second about why that might be. It seems to be that this, you know, self-reinforcing uh, system in place, the factors that are driving uh, the distribution. But you've done complementary work, which gets down to, you know, quite small scale, very, uh, fine-grained uh, analysis just to just add to the picture that Max has uh, yeah. just laid out. So just to put it in context a third of the cre creative industries businesses are in London um, the DCMS doesn't produce their sort of experimental local GVA stats anymore but last count we're talking more than half of the GVA you know is being made in London that the creative industries is producing um, and 62% of the businesses are in London and the Southeast. So I think that really puts in context the sort of big picture when it comes to the creative industries. But then it's important to say that London is perhaps the most significant global hub for the creative industries as well. Um, if you're looking across all the subsectors, so I'm sure you, of course you'd make arguments about when the biggest global tech hub was and it might not be London, but when you're thinking about things like design, really London is so central, music, film, it really dominates in so many different areas across the creative sector. Um, and as Max said, there are creative industries right across the country from the top to the bottom, um, and they like to cluster. They like to cluster in, in large cities especially. But when we started the Policy and Evidence Centre, we already had a pretty good kind of sense of, of that. We had a list of, of quite a famous list um, within the nerdy world that I live in of 47 clusters, which had been used extensively to sort of set up the Creative Industries Clusters Programme, um, a major sort of R&D investment as part of the government's industrial strategy invested through AHRC, which has been seen as very successful. Um, and we were getting a lot of emails from people who ran creative businesses, but in, you know, much smaller clusters, which were kind of invisible when you looked at the kind of national data. And that's because um, their clusters are too small for them to appear. You'd be giving away information about the individual businesses. And so Creative Radar, which is a piece with the PEC and, and with Sussex especially, 
was a piece that we did, which used sort of data that people put up themselves online, um, data on their websites to understand where in the UK creative industries were. And what that uncovered, I think really for the first time was what we call micro clusters. So micro clusters exist outside and inside traditional clusters. So that can be Shoreditch in London, but it can also be a rural cluster. We say 30 businesses or more within a certain travel to work area kind of constitutes a micro cluster. And we found many of the same benefits that you can see um, from being part of a large cluster, from being part of a small cluster. We rarely say when we're asked for advice on what it means to kind of set up a new creative industries community, I think that's a really challenging ask. But if local policymakers ask me, you know, how can I invest in the creative industries in my in my area? I always say, look for even if you don't have one of those significant um, sort of city wide clusters, look for micro clusters, look for groups of businesses that are already collaborating, that are already benefiting from sharing skills, sharing ideas, employing each other. Um, so that would really be my sort of sense of where where you find the sector. And I think we found 250, 247, I think, micro clusters outside of established um, clusters and I always remember there was one in the Shetland Islands which makes sense because if you go to the Shetland Islands there's probably a significant proportion of businesses there are creative businesses but of course the Shetland Islands isn't featuring on any sort of um, international map of creative hubs perhaps it is I don't know I should be careful it might feature on a sort of UN map of interesting rural creative hubs but it was really good to see that community represented and really gave us a jumping off point to start talk about the type of policies which might work for those really small micro clusters, as well as the more significant clusters who've received some support now for a number of years. Excellent. Yeah, I, I feel we can imagine a new index of, uh, you know, small creative islands as being something that the Shetlands and maybe one or two others may, may do rather yeah. well on. But, you know, we'll see if that uh, th that happens. Max, you come back to you because Eliza started to talk a little bit about that. You were alluding to it in, in the definition sort of section. Um, how should we think about describing or understanding why we see the concentrations that we do? And I suppose that it's the common, I suppose the interaction of, you know, kind of urban urbanization economics and uh, industrialization or localization sort of economics that Henderson and others were talking about back in the day. How should we think about the nature of the distribution and its persistence. Yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it. Um, I mean, like Eliza says, there's, you know, just when you're looking at the kind of looking at the data and looking at history, there is this kind of deep intertwining of, you know, creative and cultural activity and, and urban spaces. I mean, Peter Hall has, you know, literally written the, you know, the biggest and best book on this. Yes. Um, and there are going to be kind of, you know, deep historical reasons to do with you know to do with clustering but also to do with kind of institutions and patronage which will have helped seed some of that I mean, we might come on to some of this kind of path dependence later but like you say i mean part of the answer is you know it's it's an agglomeration story as it applies to you know business services more broadly so you know all of the kind of sharing and matching and learning that you know the kind of urban service economy the kind of high value added service economy benefits from also applies to creative services um when you think about the kind of smaller firms startups the arts i think it's you know that story is also true but it's also about you know the industry structure and the fact that you've got a lot of smes micro businesses sole traders um you know and those people don't 
you know, work in big buildings and big offices where, you know, those agglomeration economies are, are kind of brought within the firm. They have to look for them in the in the kind of urban fabric. Um, and that's why, you know, like Eliza was saying, you see a lot of these things, you know, sort of knitted very tightly together in space. So it's always struck me, you know, when I've been looking at clusters in different industries, that kind of creative clusters are very, very tightly bound. You know, so you know bits of neighbourhoods. You know, if you look within Shoreditch, there are, you know, it's obviously there's a lot of tech firms there, but you can also kind of cut Shoreditch into pieces and look at where, you know, the kind of designers are, the coders are, etc. I mean, now that has shifted as the area has changed, but it was a very striking feature, you know, kind of five, ten years ago. Yeah. Um, so that kind of soft infrastructure of the city. Um, you know, bars, cafes, co-working spaces, these are all places which help creative work get done when you, you know, you don't have an office where you can go and talk to your colleague at a desk, you have to arrange to meet them somewhere or you bump into them in the street or you have to kind of go somewhere to, you know, get your creative work done to, you know, paint your picture, to make your, make your film, make your advert. You need the kind of urban fabric and urban environment to do that. And that, I, I think that is a really, really important part of the story um, you know, the creative industries have a lot of these small firms and, you know, a lot of creative work is organised on this kind of temporary project basis where you bring people together. And cities are very, very helpful for, you know, finding those people, but also kind of assembling them and, and yeah. helping them collaborate before they all kind of disperse back into the street again. Yeah. Uh, Eliza, one of the questions, you know, just in sort of in, in the micro work that you've been doing, I, I wonder, you know, your thoughts on the the importance uh, or the influence of where the, the you know the the creative worker or the creative firm owner is living. And it says, how does that how does that then interplay with how they interact with other firms or where we actually observe them? Because in a sense, some respects, you know, Max is kind of talking about not not holding the where they live, you know, ignoring that, but they're often travelling into a neighbourhood to be alongside other firms for whatever for the reasons that we've described but in obviously i guess in some places they are they are living in those places and that by definition they are doing the work in the places that they live have you got anything to say on the sort of interaction how we should think about that uh, i think so i don't i'm trying to dredge from my mind whether i've seen any data on it but i can certainly give you sort of evidence that's been given by we have a group of people in the, in the in the center so they're called industry champions the idea was these are 100 people from across the sector who we ask about their real life experience of working in the creative industries they might have just started their career they might be really experienced it was to try and stop the center becoming a sort of academic echo chamber and so we often take this sort of data and then we ask what does this look like on the ground and, you know, through conversations and that we hold panels with them to take sort of more formal evidence, it really helps to understand, really help me to understand the extent to which the creative industries is just so highly networked. To be removed from that network um, is, is really challenging. People, of course, do it. But also, it doesn't necessarily work a sort of nine to five hour system, the sector as a whole. And that's, of course, true when you're thinking about sort of film or music, any performing um, but it's also true of other elements of the sector where there might be evening events. You know, actually, people do really want to be able to live close to where they work. And I think when you have that highly freelance sector, when you have kind of uneven working patterns, when networking is just so important, 
it makes sense that where people live, they want to be surrounded by people sort of, you know, 24 hours a day um, that that they might be able to work with. There are real challenges as, as a result of that when it comes to things like diversity, because when you've got a sector that's so networked, where personal life is so bound up with professional life, it's much harder um, to actually introduce sort of policies which improve the levels of diversity in the sector. And so I, I always thought, you know, there, there are lots of recommendations, for example, to have how to improve diversity in the creative industries, um, but none of them at least this is this was the case about seven years ago. I, I wrote a report on it. Um, looked at the fact that people wanted to hire their friend to work with them for a project over a month. Actually, that's quite a different thing to talk to someone about. Why it really might benefit them to work with someone who's quite different, yes. um, a new person who lives somewhere different. It makes total sense. They want to work on this sort of design project with their friend who they've known for ten years. They went to university together. They now live on the same street. So I, I think that those that kind of highly networked element definitely has its challenges in terms of one developing new areas in the country but even sort of breaking into existing very tightly networked groups who are already living together of course online spaces may give us ways to challenge both the sort of intensity of um, the kind of networked aspect of the sector and also the sort of intensity of the um, sort of networked uh, aspect in terms of the lack of diversity that it promotes. Um, but I think we have yet to see if that will be the case. You know, a lot of people still want to go to coffee shops to have meetings and go to parties to talk to people rather than logging into a Zoom. Yeah, no, that's a very, uh, very good point. A very good point. Um, let, let's let's move on to um, bucket two, uh, which is I want to get at um, the impact questions. Max, come back to you on on the paper because, as you rightly say in the paper, that you know there's quite a lot of literature around describing urban creative clusters, uh, you know what they are, and there's you know a lot of theorizing about why we see them, why we would expect to see them, how they change, and and all of that. But but much less work on the actual impact that those clusters or those concentrations are having, particularly on jobs or firm growth and, you know, and actually place change as well. And that's really, you know, one of the things that the paper does brilliantly and adds, I think, to the to the current literature about how we understand these sorts of things. So just talk to us a little bit about the the impacts that you were, you know, that you have actually seen. And as part of that, explain a little bit about you know, the mechanisms or channels through which that impact happens. Because since I think that's quite important, right? You have to kind of visualize or be able to explain the channel you think is working in order to, to bring about the impact. Otherwise, it's just, well, magic happens and, you know, don't worry about it. So um, just so, so two of that. And again, I'll bring Eliza back in on uh, on her additional thoughts. Before I forget, actually, just on the, on the, the diversity discussion we were just having, I think the other thing worth saying is if you think about the you know the structure of the creative industries and the, the um you know the preponderance of small firms sole traders freelancers um and the kind of work that goes on that Eliza was describing I mean it's often quite a precarious existence and so there are going to be you know material barriers to entry as well so and people like David Bryan have, have written on this recently and they've, they've worked extensively on this but I think it's you know it's worth 
um, making that clear as well, that this, like, like Eliza says, there are kind of pros and cons to this intensely networked structure, but those intersect with all kinds of, you know, kind of class and, and money barriers to getting in. And in an expensive city like London, those are really, you know, amplified and really very, very obvious. Um, but that's an, an important part of the picture. I think it will also have implications for thinking about some of these economic impacts. So on the on the impacts themselves, I mean, we it, we have sort of good news and bad news, I think, in terms of impacts. Um, like you say, you know, there are some studies that look at these effects um, in the UK and in other countries. It's quite a mixed picture. Um, and that's partly because it's hard to kind of get at the impact impacts robustly. One of the problems is, you know, this persistent clustering that we've talked about. Because you have this kind of reinforcement of clusters over time, it becomes quite difficult to um, dig out what might be driving them, since they're also kind of their growth is reinforcing themselves. So we have a go at doing that. We can we can sort of get into the uh, get under the hood if we if we want to, to to talk about that. The good news we find is that we you know see evidence of halo effects. Of the creative industries on on urban local services what we call non-tradables in the paper so think about of retail and leisure in the cities um you know kind of cafes shops bars etc the kind of stuff that's provided um locally and tends to hire very locally as well so in the average city in our data it's 1998 to 2018 each creative job generates at least uh 1.96 non-tradable jobs now i say at least because the kind of identification challenges mean we can't give a precise number we have to give a range so when the paper we talk about the kind of the bottom of the range so the true number might be higher it's at least you know 1.9 so it's a, a, around a one to two ratio and that's pretty good in the average city we also try and look at kind of the local service economy as a whole and try and back out the creative industry's contribution to that and in the average city about 16 percent of local service growth um, comes down to these creative halo effects. So it's pretty decent, I think. On the kind of mechanisms, the, what we try and do to cut that is to split the creative industries into the kind of creative services bin, so kind of advertising, media, design, and galleries, museums, and the arts. So the sort of stuff that would be more about the kind of the visitor economy versus stuff that's more about kind of creative workers spending. Now, we have more sort of suggestive than causal evidence here, but we find that both of those seem to matter. But the kind of effect size of creative services seems to be bigger than the effect size of, of the kind of the visitor economy. Now, having said that, um, I think there are a few kind of pieces of less good news. One is that when we talk about the average city, that's a bit weird because we've just talked about how clustered the creative industries are in a few places. So the average city is a sort of you know, statistical concept here. In reality, these multiplier effects are going to be much bigger in a few places that have a lot of creative industries and much smaller in most places that, you know, don't have creative clusters. We also find that multipliers go down over time. So we slice our data into kind of before and after 2007, which is our very basic way of trying to get at the kind of great financial crisis in its aftermath. And we find that multiplier Supplies before 2007 are a lot higher than after 2007. We're not completely sure why that is. I mean, it could be, um, you know, if we think that creative industries are very pro-cyclical, so the, kind of the city drives the creative 
you know, kind of demand for creative services. You can imagine that, you know, after 2008, a lot of that demand would have gone away. Um, and, you know, again, um, you know, from 2020 and during the pandemic, a lot of that demand would have gone away. So, there, you know, there's a kind of story there to dig into. Also, we find these multiplier effects on, on um, jobs, but not on firms. Um, and we don't find any strong evidence of spillovers to other sectors. So we, it's important to be clear what is there. We find sort of no evidence of impact. So we find associations, but we don't find anything causal. Because um, again, it's kind of hard to pin down. So those kind of spillover effects would be there. There are other studies that suggest they are there, but we can't you know, say for sure that that's one of the drivers of, of what we get. Yeah, well, that's uh, again fantastic exposition of uh, the the all the work in the in the paper, which is admirably uh, accessible as well. Let me say that as an academic paper, uh, there are some equations in there for those. Uh, just to forewarn you, if you go looking for it, it's, it's open source. Don't be frightened by the equations; you can look through them, uh, but you'll still get a, a real sense of the the clarity of the of the uh, analysis and the impact. Uh, Eliza, come on in on on um, what Max was saying, you know, just sort of commentary around uh, his commentary on the impact that they find and then add in, you know, the work that you've been doing as well and how we should we should begin to think about uh, uh, think about this. Yeah, so I think, again, thinking about sort of, so just taking a step back, it's worth saying the creative industries are a, obviously a really significant part of the economy um, and really interesting to think about. And that's what I spend my time doing. Uh, but historically have not been the subject of huge amounts of kind of economic research. Um, in fact, that's why the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre, which is why I'm Deputy Director, it was funded. It was really to try and correct that. And I suppose that it this is probably the area where the most research has actually happened thinking about creative clusters and still sort of we feel pretty early doors and so the piece that max did was just so important in terms of providing really hard evidence to what lots of people in the sector in policy local policymakers national have been saying for a long time but not necessarily felt able to properly evidence and so it's a really significant piece and i think that all of that work thinking about sort of what we can absolutely justify as the impact of investing in creative industries is important when we are saying to people that this might be an area that they want to look at. And that's why I always try to be really clear about the fact that creative industries investment isn't the right thing for every local authority. It's not any type of creative industries investment is going to have huge rewards. Um, but we are now beginning to kind of pull together that evidence base, which is becoming pretty essential because we know that I think a third of local authorities or let's mentioned um, the creative industries in their bids to leveling up funds. We know that people are talking about this stuff a lot mm. and we don't know whether they have the kind of evidence they need to be able to make the best decisions yet. Yeah. Um, so alongside the kind of economic evidence, I suppose another aspect of creative industries investment we talk a lot about in the context of leveling up funds is more on the kind of pride in place stuff. Um, and so I thought I'd kind of touch on how the evidence for that sits alongside this. So I think it's really important at this point to remember that the creative industries is made up of a very varied group of subsectors, some of which probably improve pride in place. And I can touch on that, but some of which probably don't. 
Um, having said that, it does include some of the things that you will see people talk about. Normally, depending on where they live in the country, after the natural environment, as the thing that makes them most proud to live in the place that they live in. And so that makes it an interesting sort of uh, an interesting area to invest in. Um, again, it's not without its problems, and it certainly doesn't mean that one pound into the creative industries increases pride in place by 50%. I wouldn't want to make those claims, but we are starting to build together a more sort of economics um, uh, evidence base um, to understand what that looked like. And something that we've been working in the PEC really hard with DCMS, um, with DCMS and with Arts Council England on is something called cultural heritage capital, which is about trying to find a sort of proxy to give the treasury a sort of green book equivalent way of understanding how important cultural assets are to people in their local area. That sits alongside and is very distinct from the economic impacts. But what it allows us to do is really demonstrate kind of for the first time in terms of what people would be willing to spend on um, freely available cultural assets, how important things like cathedrals are or museums are to the people who live in the places that have those have those things in them. I also think that there's another sort of area of research that I would love to build on, which doesn't exist yet. I'm really interested in um, soft power policy at the international level, but I also think it has a lot in common with um, sort of uh, national policies around the creative industries. We know that soft power is incredibly hard to measure and sort of unlike creative industries research, lots of money and time and thought has gone into that globally for a really long time. And yet we still don't have really clear metrics to talk about how important it is that you sort of have a narrative about the place you live in um, that is based on the kind of uh, cultural assets, diplomatic assets that you have. And I think that when I when I'm when I'm sort of talking to people in local authorities or let's about their bid, one thing that I'm very aware of is that the creative industries are often part of the narrative that we tell about a place. And I think sometimes we think that's advertising, but but I don't think that's true. I think that a soft power narrative about a local place is just a simplified narrative which helps people to understand um, where, why they might work with a place, why they won't want to live in a place. So an example I'd give would be around Hull City of Culture, which was a huge step in transforming how Hull was seen by people from across all industries. Um, it really brought the kind of most exciting artworks from around the country to Hull for a short space of time. It is incredibly hard to measure the impact of that because it's only one part in a long term campaign to get the rest of the country and the rest of the world to see what the people who lived in Hull already saw about the place they lived in to kind of change what the bits of Hull that were being seen as part of their sort of overall narrative. So. I think absolutely we need to carry on sort of building this economic case around the creative industries, but the sector, the sort of wonderful thing about working in the sector is that it's also going to be really important to carry on looking at the sort of numbers so that we can better understand and better evidence the other benefits that the sector has. We don't want investment in sort of arts, white elephants, people thinking if they just invest in a new arts organization, that's going to transform what their area looks like. We need to make sure we have as complex an understanding of the sort of pride in place case of the creative industries as we do for the kind of economic investment case. Brilliant. Excellent. Again, uh, incredibly well. Max, anything to add in terms of just reflecting on 
Eliza, I suppose a, a question to you in terms of the findings that you found, um, was there anything surprising in there, either in terms of, you know, a positive or a negative or, as uh, you know, a size or non-size or, you know, given a, you know, your incredibly well experienced and incredibly well read in this sort of literature so just just anything that surprised you or you know you weren't expecting as well as any reflections on you know Eliza's great point about you know we need to think about impact across the piece which then informs investment and support strategies and where they come from and what maybe they're aimed at doing as well Max. Eliza's absolutely on point with all of that. I mean, this is <laughs> looking at my talking points, they're basically the same talking points as hers on this. Um, you know, you have to be, as a policymaker, national or local, you know, when you're thinking about the economic impacts of this stuff, you have to set your expectations and, you know, uh, uh, of what you're going to get, but also what your kind of policy mix is going to get, with one exception that I'll come on to in a minute. Um, but also just be very clear on, on what your objectives are like Eliza said there is a kind of economic case you can make but that case is going to be a lot stronger in the places that already have big clusters if you're interested in these kind of halo effects um but there's also a very important kind of social um well-being quality of life case which is about access to culture it's about access to heritage all of the stuff that Eliza was talking about yeah, it's very encouraging that we're beginning to build an evidence base to try and quantify that um because that obviously makes it much more kind of treasury compatible and kind of green and then magenta book compatible mm. um so i think all of that is really important and as a policymaker, you need to kind of fine-tune your strategies and your objectives to those different cases that you um that you can make i mean in terms of, kind of surprising things we found um i mean i think we were we were interested in the fact that the you know multiplier was kind of as big as it was um, when we went back to the literature and looked at the kind of multipliers people get for, you know, the tech sector, for example, it does kind of broadly compare. Um, you know, you have this famous Moretti number that, um, you know, one tech job supports kind of four or five local service jobs. And people have kind of whittled away at that number over time. So I think Tom Kemeny, who I think you've had on the podcast, has yes. done some recent work with Tanner Osmond, suggesting the real number is quite a lot smaller than that. But they, their number, their kind of revised number is quite a lot closer to our number. Um, so I think for this kind of, you know, kind of complex creative services and, and kind of arts mix that the creative industries consists of, I think, you know, on reflection, that number was less surprising. The thing that's a bit more puzzling to us is why that number's gone down because the creative industries have only grown in this period. They haven't, you know, they've had some dips in recessions, but that's kind of cyclical. The kind of structural trend, like we were saying at the beginning, is towards what academics call the kind of culturalization of the economy. So we should see more people doing creative tasks and creative occupations across um, all industries, as well as in the set of industries that we call creative industries. So. I mean, it, it may be that there's some kind of econometric reason why, you know, the more creative activity you have distributed across the economy, um, kind of the less the kind of halo effects in the creative sectors, because everyone's more creative. We need to think a bit, a bit about that some more, but it is, a, it is a puzzle. We were expecting it to kind of go the other way. Mm. Um, I guess the, 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 the other point to make on policy, and we don't talk about this so much in the paper, but I do talk about it in the kind of, blog post that I wrote about the paper is we've got to take these creative clusters as, 
as given at city level. So we, you know, we we accept that there's basically a kind of power law where a few places have got a lot of creative activity. Um, most places don't. Like Eliza says, there are actually lots of little neighbourhoods dotted around the country, including in rural areas where there are more creative firms than you think, but those clusters are still micro clusters. Um, but if we're thinking about levelling up, I think an obvious question is, you know, do we have to take that power law as given? Are there things that we can do to try and shift the geography of creativity? Um, now, for all the reasons we've talked about, I don't think, you know, market forces are going to do that. But we are doing, whether intentionally or not, a couple of policy experiments right now where we have relocated or are considering relocating you know, large chunks of creative industries outside London to other parts of the country. So one of those is, is the BBC's, you know, kind of partial move to Salford, which is now, a, you know, now quite kind of an old move, but they're continually adding people there. And the other one is Channel 4's move to Leeds, which is much smaller. Channel 4's obviously a kind of different kind of organisation and we might expect different kinds of impacts. But those are kind of, you know, live natural experiments where we're looking at what happens if we kind of take a bit of a cluster, break it off and put it somewhere else. What does that do? to the local economy um, and it's, it will be very very interesting to see to see how that goes I mean the channel 4 move I think is very very recent for the BBC we you know can see you know you guys have done some work on the short-term impact um, Henry Overman um, Capucine Rio and Maria Sanchez Vidal and I have a paper which we hope will eventually come out which will look at some of the impacts of this um, but all of that stuff is relatively short term I think when you're thinking about these kind of um, changes to, you know, whole kind of ecosystems, you need to be looking really long term. So kind of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Um, and there actually the, the kind of historical literature on new institutions or kind of radical relocations, you know, suggest that you can get some, you know, long term benefits from those. So, you know, studies that have looked you know, in the US, sort of dropping new institutions into places, like universities or, or kind of specialist colleges, or kind of, you know, shocks to an industry which relocates parts of it to, away from one place to another. You can see some long-term economic impact of that. So there's another kind of economic policy agenda here, which we're, we're only just starting to get to grips with, and we'll kind of see where it goes, you know, depending on how the levelling up agenda yeah. uh, kind of survives. But no, I think no, there no, are a bunch of really interesting questions there. Yeah, well, and you've seamlessly taken us into bucket three, which is, you know, the policy kind of questions and and issues. So, Eliza, come in there. So, I, you know, I, I, let's ignore for the minute the sort of policy statement, which is creative industries is a big bit of the economy. It's where we're very good, and we should probably do more of it uh, in the future because we want to focus on the things that we're good at and see if we can get them to be better. And, you know, that's important for a whole bunch of hard and soft and all that kind of reasons. Let, let's park that for a, a, a second, but let, let's kind of think about the policy questions that relate to the sort of space that we often find ourselves in, you know, which is kind of subnational. Yeah. you know, most recently now we're talking about levelling up, you know, does the concentration versus diffusion questions, in, I guess, raises some interesting questions for us about, you know, levelling up on the on the you know on the one hand, I think there's the other question, which is if we want to see more stuff happening in more places, for argument's sake, to what degree are the conditions that we see in the places that are doing relatively well? Is that replicable in some way or not? You know, in a sense, I think there's a kind of bunch of things there, which goes to Max's point about if scale is playing a role, then you know that in itself is is a limiting factor ultimately on 
our ability to do stuff in substantive and big ways. Who knows, right? Okay. But Eliza, go, you know, go for it, I suppose, on yeah. the policy sort of sense. I mean, there's so many interesting questions. And the one that I've been asked the most um, is, you know, you'll sit down with a civil servant or a policymaker and they'll say, okay, so I want, you know, I want to invest in the creative industries. Where should I invest? And I always say, it depends what you want, which is obvious. And, and this is really true for the economy as a whole, but it's as true for the creative industries, maybe slightly more, which is that if you were just thinking about boosting productivity, if that was your only ambition and you were completely agnostic about where in the where in the country that that was happening london is as i mentioned at the beginning sort of one of the global centers for the creative industries it would be really easy to invest that in london you'd invest it in sort of increasing exports you'd look at r&d there are lots of ways that you would do that but that's not the only thing that we have on the policy agenda that's not the only thing that the government and actually governments of all colors want to achieve at the moment um and so that means that we should be asking a much more complicated question which is at the local level is investing in my local creative industries the right thing to do and why and so i always say that yeah okay if you want to just think about productivity go for the big clusters but also looking just even at the productivity of the Shetland Islands, it still probably makes sense on that level for them to invest in their creative industries. So you've really just got to look with different lenses depending on what you want to achieve. Um, I still think having looked at all the evidence for micro clusters and clusters, it still makes complete sense to me to think about investing, supporting, growing small communities of creative businesses rather than creative businesses across a very broad rural area. We just see so many benefits again and again. Um, we know that outside of the outside of sort of London and the Southeast, there's a particular uh, kind of question around access to finance that we see propping up sort of more often. And so I would certainly think about whether that would be a reason why companies reaching a certain level would be moving to London. Um, and, you know, then you see companies in London moving overseas, especially in the tech sector. So there's obviously some things that need to kind of happen there. Um, and then that other pot, I would I would almost separate it, although thinking about what kind of investments might be able to deliver on both levels. But that other pot, which is around kind of pride in place, I'd really be thinking about other metrics. I don't think we can expect every creative business to do everything. But I think there are examples of a sort of slightly virtuous circle albeit with significant drawbacks around um thick questions like gentrification when you think about somewhere like margate so we know that um there there was significant cultural investment you know the turner contemporary was a huge driver for people who might want to have lived in london it was uh, uh, moving to margate also it was really important to create a kind of year-round economy that was working for the people who already lived there whether that's happened is certainly up for debate but also a massive investment in the kind of transport infrastructure that was going to be allowed allowing creatives to kind of move around the country in the way they needed to so you know just to summarize there's so many different lenses to look at the question of leveling up in the creative industries i certainly would move away from a completely national what to do about kind of national productivity lens because i think that's a really reductive way to look at this question but if i was in local yep. um, government i would be looking at sort of where i can invest in specific clusters and also thinking really carefully about what i want those investments to achieve okay max i'll come to you in a second eliza just come back to you 
maybe this is slightly unfair, but but you can just tell me that and we'll move on. Let me turn the question on its head. You said, you know, the, the most frequent question you get is, what should I be doing? Under what conditions do you say nothing? Right? Because, I mean, I, yeah. I agree with everything you've said, but, but part of the problem in, in some respects is that there is never, you know, rarely do we give the answer to places, this is not for you, here's my reason, you know, in a sense if that... you have no creative clusters, if there right. are no creative micro clusters or clusters, I think that the creative industries might not be the sector you want to focus on for economic benefit. That yeah. does not mean you don't need to think about your cultural assets. You really, yeah. really do. Every area will have cultural assets, which are hugely important to people's sense of, you know, why they want to live there, what it means to them. But if you were thinking about just economic returns, if there really aren't any creative clusters, then I wouldn't think it was necessarily the area for investment for you. Um, I also think that we've, you know, I am nervous that, and this is true for all the leveling up bids, but I'm nervous about investments without an understanding or knowledge about the specificity of your creative clusters. So plans made, sort of having read maybe our national docs about the creative industries won't be specific enough to really support a local creative cluster. Local creative clusters are going to have a vast range of different needs. There are some that are probably sort of common, um, but things like access to finance, you know, at what level, how big are these businesses? Yeah. Um, how are they accessible? Uh, there may also be things like skills, you know, what specific skills in the subsectors that you've got to focus on. So I always say, if you want to be putting your the creative industries front and center of your kind of leveling up bid, fantastic. But think carefully about separating what they can do for pride in place from what they do economically and really try to know as much about your local ecosystem as possible before coming up with a set of kind of cookie cutter plans that you've stolen from another council. I think you should always be able to. I had this radical idea that I think all leveling up bids, you should be able to take the place's name out of it and still tell where it is. And in the creative industries, that is certainly the case. If it's something which could have been written by any LEP or any local authority, that is huge alarm bells for me because creative clusters are massively different across the country yeah, and will need different point. kinds of support. That's a great point. Great point. Max, you're sort of, quite, you know, you started on there. We, we're running some, probably not deliberately, but we are running some experiments about if we move stuff to other places, what might happen my hope is that we're going to treat them as experiments and actually evaluate them but that's a whole different conversation again for another podcast we've already got three or four podcasts that we're going to do in the future on related uh subjects but hold that one to aside just on a policy kind of a implications and then b sort of any recommendations as well as from from uh, from the work that you've been doing and obviously your 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 broader uh, work i think a big you know, thinking about Eliza's question, where should I invest? You know, a big part of that is who is asking. So like Eliza was saying, I think the answer is going to be different um, depending on whether it's a, you know, someone in a government department or a minister versus, you know, a local councillor or official. I mean, it says something about how centralised we are that we always assume that the, you know, I or we is somebody in Whitehall. Um, you know, and Eliza sort of put, very well the kind of different types of cases for support that you'll want to marshal depending on where you sit in the policy um you know in, in the kind of policy landscape i mean on the economic case 
I mean, I think, you know, I would say this is someone who's kind of econ adjacent, but I think the kind of product, productivity arguments are, going, are really important. I mean, the new government has recognised those. We've had a productivity problem in the UK uh, for a long time. There are a lot of, you know, academic investments now looking at um, trying to sort of dig into different parts of the productivity problem. I mean, like, like Eliza says, I mean, the kind of the economic case for you know the economic answer to sort of where should I invest if your central government um, or a kind of national institution is going to be in one of the big clusters I mean the interesting thing there is that local knowledge is also really important so when Channel 4 was, was kind of running its competition and considering where to go you know I and many other academics and commentators were all urging them to go to Manchester because that was the kind of non-London cluster that we could look at. Whereas people who had a better understanding of the differences between the BBC and Channel 4's commissioning models and internal structure, um, as well as their kind of, you know, strategy to be very kind of tech adjacent, you know, had a better sense that Leeds would be a good fit and possibly a better fit than Manchester. Now, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Greater Manchester and all the people in it um, and I'm sure they would have made that case convincingly as well and we don't know why Channel 4 chose in the way they did ultimately um, or at least I don't but you know there's, there's kind of generic advice you can give and then there's stuff that's you know that matters for you as the organisation whether you're whether you're the kind of the government department that's thinking of moving or whether you're the kind of uh, you know the broadcaster or, or kind of industry body that's thinking of moving. The other thing that struck me is that we talk quite a lot about sort of statics and less about dynamics. So, you know, Eliza was talking about kind of movements in and out of cities. And actually that cues up different types of policies, which are partly about places, but also about kind of sectors and are kind of closer to industrial policy. So, you know, we know, as we said, that big cities are very good for, you know, creative industries, particularly small firms, because they provide the infrastructure that, you know, big firms internalize. Um, there's a whole kind of academic literature about, you know, big cities as kind of nurseries for startups. Um, and there's a sort of set of business support policies, which I think would speak to that. Um, you know, some of the kind of negative feedback loops that come out of clusters around, you know, competition for workspace, gentrification in the housing markets, you know, then touch on a whole load of other policy areas, partly about affordable workspace and kind of shared workspace, but also about planning and housing policy. I'm not sure I have the answers to all of those I mean there is a you know a, a lot of interesting work on kind of co-working spaces as ways that might solve some of this competition for space problem I think the broader gentrification questions like Eliza was saying are, are really interesting and like very much um, you know to the fore in places like Margate there is another paper that um, Diana Tassos and I are doing for the PEC and kind of polishing up at the moment where we're going to try and shed a bit of light on some of those connections. And I think the creative industries will be, you know, not completely off the hook with that. But I think those linkages are weaker than we worry they might be. I think there are other things driving gentrification. But, you know, if you're local government and you, you know, you have a lot of creative industries suddenly in your area, then that's going to be a real issue for you to think about. That. Yeah, well, great. So that's podcast number five. Uh, just... Um, uh, uh, originating from the conversation that we had, marvelous. The rest of my schedule for the for twenty three and beyond is is sorted just by by having you two on doing this podcast. It was amazing. So, um, last question to close, and it's a big one. And the answer is probably we don't know the actual effects, but I want you to have a bash at how helping us think about it, which is this other big experiment that we've started and are still working through which is essentially the hybrid working effect that has come on the back of 
obviously the pandemic pandemic you know is receding in a sort of in a medical sense but the economic social cultural kind of implications will be with us for a longish time um max come to you first because i know you you know you a long time ago or what it feels like a long time ago you and henry wrote, wrote one of the best pieces i think is still one of the best pieces about not what the effects will be but how we should think about what the effects might be and i think i i, I wonder where how you see the interaction between some of the things that you've been talking about this kind of con concentration the diffusion and how hybrid working which in theory you know disassociates or weakens potential the links and relationships between where we work on a daily basis or where we live on a you know uh, over the the longer term how how should we think about about how that plays into this kind of space given like much of the the economy you know creative industries are still concentrated in certain parts even if we see a kind of longish tail of microclusters that eliza has been talking about so just just your final thoughts on that and then uh, i'll get eliza as well and we will uh, wrap up max yeah so the short answer is we don't know um but we can <laughs> no, we can speculate intelligently and we can look for signals um and you know one of the you know one of the you know interesting things about kind of research during the pandemic was but you know we as a research community all got a lot better at identifying you know high frequency data and data from unusual sources that could tell us useful things about the way people were behaving and the way these you know forced experiments were playing out so i mean i'd highlight three things one is hybrid working is going to really touch the kind of business services and creative services end of the the creative industries that you know the kind of work that you know, in the old world was, you know, done largely in offices. And now a portion of that will be, you know, done from home or done in, in kind of co-working spaces or in a, in a kind of hybrid sense. That sort of three to two model is the one that the kind of big office intensive sector seem to be settling on, you know, both in the UK, but also in the US and other yep. countries. So it's a sort of new, a new normal. Um, I mean, like you say, on the face of it, um, that should be bad for, you know, creativity and bad for innovation because all our kind of pre-pandemic work suggests, all the pre-pandemic evidence suggests you need to meet face-to-face -to, -face to, to spark ideas. Um, that should be a kind of one-off hit. The kind of counterpoint to that is actually there's quite a lot of work in that field that suggests you need face-to-face -face for new relationships and to build relationships and to build collaborations. But, uh, you know, as you get to know each other and get used to working with each other, that becomes less important. So I, I did some a paper on this a long time ago, but there's been a bunch of other better papers by other people that suggest sort of similar things. But, and, you know, you can see that in academic research and kind of business research collaboration. So there's clearly going to be a kind of short-term hit. And we have a couple of studies now that look at, you know, what happened to ideas flow and communication in big firms under lockdown. It's, you know, it's pretty bad. Basically, they stopped talking to each other. They only talked inside their teams. Yeah. I think the big question is, you know, how much that really matters in the long term, given what we know about, you know, face-to-face -face at the beginning versus face-to-face -face over time. And then the other thing is, you know, how good hybrid working technology will turn out to be as a sort of substitute complement. Um, it's, you know, we the technology was a lot more ready than I think most of us, you know, understood pre-pandemic. Yeah. You know, it's certainly good enough to have 
you know, to do conversations like this remotely rather than in person, as we would have done a few years ago. I'm not sure whether it's good enough to have the kind of rich interactions that we think we need face to face to do. Um, but time will tell. I think that's, a, that, you know, that's the kind of margin we should be interested in. When we think about the other parts of the creative industries, like the sort of arts, amenities, attractions, it's, it's much harder to think about how you would do that stuff online as a substitute for doing it in reality. And actually, you know, the kind of feet on the ground, you know, and you guys will know this from your, from your high streets tracker work, is like people are piling back into city centres and high streets and, and venues to consume, you know, retail and leisure and heritage and all of the kind of things that cities provide a lot of. So it's much harder to see that kind of thing going away. Yeah, I think that, you know, the work that we've been tracking shows that, you know, in some respects, our cities have come back much quicker and much more strongly on the consumption side uh, than they have on the kind of traditional work or production side, as we would, you know, we would kind of narrowly define it, which I think is interesting implications. Eliza, uh, final word to you on this sort of hybrid working experiment and its interactions with the nature of creative industries work but also the geography of it your any any thoughts on that yeah i think um i think i'd i'd really agree with a lot of what max said my gut feeling is that it will have an impact but not sort of the earth shattering impact we might have expected i don't expect to see sort of clusters dispersing across the uk as a result of it um just because of that need to have i i did a piece of research years ago now um that looked at creative freelancers and I think on average it's something like you know 10 contracts a year um and 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 if you can imagine the kind of relationship building that needs to go on to build each of those quite long-term contracts you can see how it's different to other kind of freelance working where you're sort of uh maybe working with you know someone different every day and so you're thinking across the whole country actually this is about relationship building this is about long-term projects the majority of the time um also creative industries depending on where you are in it need what's uh, lovingly called messy space. So a real problem with the sector in London has been, you know, for designers, for architects, um, for artists, they actually haven't been able to have access to kind of the larger enough, large enough spaces to be able to do what they need to do. That also goes to people who are like building sets for theatres. You need huge spaces to do this stuff. And so you've really seen, um, you know, people moving as a result of needing that space and, and that space isn't going to go away. The other thing that I'd mention is that I've seen some interesting research on mental health in the creative industries and how lonely people can be living in this sort of world. And so putting that alongside the kind of research I've read around loneliness, the pandemic, working online, human interaction, I'd suggest that there's, you know, a real need for sort of a sociological um, uh, review of what sort of good work looks like in the creative industries, which is a perfect tee up to mention that we are actually doing a piece of work called Good Work, the Good Work Review, which is about what good work looks like in the creative industries. It's not sociological, it's really broad, but it's thinking about what it means to have a good working life in a sector that can not always, but be precarious, um, you know, can be difficult to get into, to stay into, um, but can give very fulfilling roles. And some of them have even got pretty good salary attached. So yeah, it's um, definitely, definitely something that we'll keep an eye on, but I'm not expecting things to sort of change overnight, just because I think there are lots of different factors at play that suggest that people are still going to want and need to meet in person. Brilliant. Uh, a great point 
to uh, finish on what constitutes and how do we achieve uh, the good life, which I think is a good way to finish. Uh, my guests today have been Max Nathan and Eliza Easton. Thank you both very much indeed for being part of City Talks. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the Centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the Centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner. Use with permission and all rights are reserved.